Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a very interesting founder. I mean, a founder that has done already two exits, that it's uh, on his way to building his next uh, really, really big company. Uh, really, really interesting, you know, thematic, you know, what he has of uh, of doing stuff in, you know, like with big data, dislocations. And, but I think that, you know, he will be able to tell us uh, better than I do. So I guess without further ado, Jeff White, welcome to the show. I appreciate you having me. Thank you. So originally born and raised outside of Washington, D.C. How was life growing up there? Well, I can tell you, for those that follow baseball, we grew up without a baseball team. But now we can say we're we're home of the World Series champion, Washington Nationals. So. <laughs> Good stuff. But it's an interesting place. It's a place where uh, politics seems to dominate the landscape and blot out the sun. But there's a very, very thriving tech community here in uh, Northern Virginia, outside of Washington D.C. Very nice, and I see as well that um, you know you were attracted uh, into engineering, into resolving problems, and you know all of that stuff. So, so tell us a little bit about this. Yeah, sure. So, obviously, by pedigree, I have an engineering degree and a computer science degree. I think I'm an MBA, but but more importantly, um, you know, it's always been about really trying to apply technology to solve business problems that I had frankly had been experiencing in my own professional life. So every business, at least that I have ever started, has always been around applying principles of taking data and creating solutions to really operational, everyday sort of problems um, that I had experienced as part of my professional career. Very cool. And obviously, you know, like there is a one, some, something really interesting here is that you did a little bit of corporate America before going at it as a founder. So I guess the question here is clear. Is it, do you think that entrepreneurs are born with it or, you know, they're formed over time? Well, clearly they have to be a little crazy. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> of course. Somebody once told me logic has no place for entrepreneurship because if you knew the odds, you wouldn't you wouldn't yeah. do it. Um, <laughs> but you know, my trajectory was a little, maybe a little unique because I always thought I was going to be a corporate executive. I wanted to be on the track to be CEO. So throughout my after getting my MBA, my my professional career was always about rounding out my experience. Uh, sales and marketing, getting finance, operational experience, 
because I wanted to be a CEO. And, and I will never forget the day that it, it really hit me. Um, and I won't name this company, um, but I was at one of the largest companies uh, working and someone actually came around to our offices and started counting the seedling tiles in our office because depending on your grade and depending on your level, you only got allowed so many ceiling tiles and they were going to reorganize our building and floors and everything else based upon that. And I'm like, wow, that is no place for strategy here. Wow. Um, I'm in the wrong place. Um, and, and never looked back from that moment on. That's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> so then I guess from, from this, I would say corporate experience, I mean, you did Caterpillar, you did also AT&T. Uh, and you did, you know, six years in Caterpillar and then two years in AT&T. So I guess, what did you learn from these two experiences? Well, I think, you know, the genesis of my first business was built on the back of trying to solve managerial and operational issues that I was doing with those companies. And they all had different lenses by which we applied um, the problem set to. But one of the things I learned is nothing is done without people. And, you know, no matter how smart you are, no matter how agile you are, no matter how great you are at finance, whatever it is, um, without a great team, um, your results are always going to be very, very suboptimal. Yeah. So, um, you know, and I learned a great lesson from a Harvard business case around a, it's a business principle called U2D2, which is basically, at its nutshell, um, formulation of uh, managing people through operational discipline. And, um, that's probably my biggest takeaway from both of those experiences is that you can't do anything without a great team around you. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess the, um, you know, obviously let's, let's talk about here, like how you started to incubate, you know, the thought of maybe like taking off from corporate America and going at it uh, on your own, because I mean, you were already at it for like, you know, eight years, uh, in corporate America is comfortable. Mm. You get the nice paycheck, you know, that at the end of the month, you know, the, <laughs> you're going to have, you know, food on the table and all of that good stuff. So, uh, I guess why, why did you decide to complicate your life with entrepreneurship? <laughs> How did that come, you know, to, to knocking on your door? Yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic question. I, and in some cases, I think, um, opportunity probably knocks on many people's door and they just choose not to hear it or answer it. But it's, it's, <laughs> in some cases, it's probably always knocking. So in, in my particular story, um, I was at AT&T and some of the biggest challenges that we were facing at the time was around uh, supplier management. You know, we were outsourcing everything into these various parts of the world and, and recognizing that we were struggling, heck, to manage the next cube over, much less the next continent over. And, and what got me was really the engineer inside of me is that my ability to address that problem and make a meaningful dent into that problem was never going to come back on the back of my job, which had daily operational responsibilities. I needed to extract myself from that to really attack the problem. And so I had kids, I had a family, I had a mortgage, um, and, and really decided at that moment, I just, I just could not resist trying to attack that problem with, with all of my heart. And, and I couldn't do that and maintain my day job at the same time. Wow. So, uh, I mean, how was the conversation with your wife? It didn't go over so well. Um, you know, somebody once told me, how do you know when you're, don't call yourself a, a early stage startup. And I always said, it's when your wife stops telling you to go out and get a job. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but times were tough and that, in that first business, in fact, we were growing 
so fast. We were doubling in size every year. Our lowest growth rate year in all of the years of Blue Canopy was like 98%. And a fast, rapid-growing business consumes capital. And this is where I had to learn a valuable lesson on cash flow management. We were growing so fast, cash couldn't keep up. I couldn't finance the business to monitor to to fund my growth. And I effectively sold myself into a cash position. And I'll never forget sitting around with the leadership team and the other managers there. And there was only one check to go around to pay somebody's mortgage. And we looked at each other. We all put our mortgage in the hat. And we said, who's is due first? Who's is most behind? And those are the ones that got paid. Um, so there were tough times. And I, I'll never forget sitting there thinking, I signed up for this. My family didn't. Um, and, and in those tenuous moments is where the crucible of really courage gets built because we, we were all in at that point. Yeah. Well, that's what builds a culture. You know, at the end of the day, those types of moments, no, Jeff? Yeah, that's for sure. So I guess, hey, let's talk about the incubation of, uh, of the idea of Blue Canopy. So um, how did you come across you know, this, this idea and, 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 and tell us, how did you bring it to life? Sure. So Blue Canopy was born on the back, as I said, we, we were struggling to manage supplier relationships um, across uh, many different continents. And what I started to realize and apply and how I did my job was a concept uh, really taken out of Toyota supply chain around creating visibility and transparency. And the aha moment I had was really when I started to look at IT projects, uh, just like how an automobile is made, right? It's still a, a, from beginning to end, taking raw materials, whether that's labor hours and code, um, delve into a final end product and realizing that along the way, we were sub-optimized, there was no visibility. And so I started creating methodologies and software that started to instrument a lot of this. And that was really the moment that I said, this becomes such a big problem that a lot of companies were experiencing that it just, it seemed to be something I just couldn't stop thinking about and wanting to address. And that's what compelled me to start Blue Canopy. So then let's talk about the uh, founding team. How did you get the band together? Yeah, and effectively, it was really making sure that I rounded out skill sets that I inherently didn't possess in myself. One was finance. So one of the founding partners uh, brought that expertise to the table. And the other one was around people um, and operational. And, and uh, that partner came to the table and we formed the three-legged stool, which had a very stable foundation for that poised us for growth going forward. So how were you guys making money then? We weren't. Um, we were we were three guys in a napkin at that point. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, a big idea, but we felt very confident that the problem persisted on, on many facets across many industries. So at that point, we just threw logic to the wind and um, jumped in. And I understand that the growth was uh, on a whole nother level. So tell us, what, what is it like when you're like in a rocket ship like that? Scary. Um, as I said, it's scary for, for a multitude of reasons, because obviously when you have an organization growing so fast, um, and it's also dependent upon practitioners to put these software and, and processes in place. Um, you're stretching all facets of the business, both operational, you know, getting the right people, getting them trained, getting them in front of clients. Uh, finance was really, really a struggle because, as I said, we were um, growing so fast. Financing the business became a really challenge to finance the growth. So every single thing that possibly could be strained uh, was. And how did you guys capitalize the business? So we bootstrapped it a hundred percent and uh, we were fortunate to get some pretty significant contracts out of the gate 
some things that gave us fuel um, very, very early on in term in, into our launch. Um, we got partnered with Gartner and Gartner started to take our software and institutionalize that as part of their benchmarking practice for outsourced relationships. And um, we completely bootstrapped the whole thing. And obviously you were bootstrapping, you know, it's a, it's incredible growth. Why did you decide to sell? It's interesting. So I got bit on the software narcotic. We were a company uh, that was doing both services and software. And the software to me seemed like much better scalable business. And so what I originally set out to do was like, I wanted to sell the services piece of the business and keep the software. Um, it became my passion really is building, building the tool, not necessarily training the practitioners to use the tool. And uh, set out to sell the um, services piece that went along with it. And one thing led to another. As part of that process, we got hooked up with a private equity firm. Um, they liked the business and kept it together and just bought majority interest, which gave us and, and us liquidity, uh, an exit path, and still allowed us to ride along the way with the next chapter of the business. Very nice. So how long did it take until you guys were able to close that deal? Oh, it seemed like forever. Um, uh, I, it was probably a process, uh, I'll say 18 months in the making, <laughs> but you know, as you, as you know, the closer you get to the finish line, sometimes the further off it seems. Yeah. And it, it was a long, arduous <laughs> process to go along the way. Cause at the same time, you're still trying to run the business and maintain your growth rates and, and not get distracted. Yeah. And obviously it took you no time to start your next uh, rodeo. So, um, tell us about GoFuin. Well, it's funny you should ask because one of the the thing that was keeping me up at night uh, at Blue Canopy was I had I had uh, supply chain dislocation of of supply and demand. So I had on one side of my business I had people who were ready to go out deploy, get on customer contracts, but were delayed because of various cycles. Right, you got contractual cycles, billing cycles, whatever that the customer wasn't ready for us to go. And so I had, I was eating up cost and profit for people sitting on the bench. On the other side of my business, I had discrete resources that I needed from a subcontract point of view to fulfill work that I wasn't going to hire that I couldn't find them. And I'm like, this is an enormous supply and demand dislocation in the marketplace. There should be a better way to do this. And I started looking around and there wasn't. So I took what was keeping me up at night and I said, what if there was a platform that effectively did at the time what eBay did for people selling consumer goods to one another i was like why couldn't i do that for subcontract labor so i built a platform um became gov, GovWin, and it was really about just trying to create um fluidity and to sort of the supply and demand curve around subcontract labor very nice so was there like a point in time where you said uh, okay so you know there's like here's the idea you know here's what i think this could be now is my time to to let go of 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 being, you know, uh, in your in your other baby because you're jumping, you know, from baby to baby. So I, I will tell you, um, I had a significant um, exit clause penalty if I were to leave before my two years was up with the PE firm. And um, this idea, I, and I still remember to this day, I woke up in the middle of the night with the entirety of the vision of GovWin. In fact, that night, um, this was probably like two or three in the morning, I got up, 
I reserved the URLs. I built the business plan. I did my first pitch deck that night, walked into the private equity firm who now was uh, running the, running the business of blue canopy and said, I'll pay the penalty. I got to go do this. Wow. And, um, it, it, it just all came together. Like with literally one of my, one of my favorite lines of business is never confuse a clear vision with a short distance at that moment, at that night, I had a, such a clear vision that I didn't care the distance I had to go. Wow. So then what happened next? I was fired. Uh, (laughs) um, (laughs) it, it, it is ironic because the business pains that I had lived in managing blue canopy, the acquirer clearly now was suffering those same plans. When I went and presented it to him, he pulled out a drawer and goes, I've been thinking you're, you're way further along than I am, but I've been thinking something similar. He goes, I'll waive your exit penalty if you allow me to participate and we can build it together. And that's what we did. Wow. So then what yeah. was the process of uh, putting together the founding team here? So in this particular case, it was, um, it was me. And um, we had a mutual friend that um, we knew that was interested in building a, a tech platform. We went out and uh, met with him, and he, together we built out the team. And it was a very small team. I think um, uh, seven of us came together to build that company. Really, really nice. Uh, and I guess, uh, what yeah. was the what was the profile of, of the seven that came together? So um, there was a obviously a CTO product guy. There were I had a front end team of two, a back end team of two, um, and then I had a uh, architect okay. that brought it all together. And then when we eventually sold um, a short time later, you know, I had a couple of salespeople by that point. But yeah, that was because it. here, how how were you guys intending? I mean, it was literally like eighteen months after you got started with the with the business day. The company got acquired. I mean, you went from zero to six thousand customers, you know, during that time. So, what, what, how were you guys really like making money? <laughs> so it was a a subscription model, and 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 we had a lot of upsell charges that people could do if they wanted to showcase themselves. But but what we realized is, I think you know, maybe it goes back to the engineer in me is that, you know, problems, um, exist in many, in many cases. And, you know, sometimes a better mousetrap is good, right? It's not always enough, but it gives you the, the opportunity to, to really launch something pretty special. In this case, that problem, it was shocking at how much it persisted at all levels across all companies. There was an enormity of supply and demand dislocations in the marketplace that it just allowed our tool, our platform, to really hit the market at the right time. So why 18 months? Why 18 months, eh, Jeff? Why not, you know, continuing with the business? Well, everybody asks me that. Did you sell too early? Did you sell too early? Um, There may be some truth to that. I think um, at that time, I always knew when I launched this business, there was one logical buyer that would be really, if I had had designed the perfect spec of a buyer, it would be this buyer. And uh, that, that company was a company called Dell Tech, publicly traded company. And I always knew um, they would be the, the ideal spec. And they really got preemptive and predatory in the process. They came and, frankly, made a, an offer that I, the board, could not refuse. Um, and so um, we took it to the board and, and launched and sold it. And a 10x for investors, so not bad at all. So really, yeah, really 10x in 18 months on, on invested capital. We did, we did pretty well. Not bad. So I guess the um, and then you started, you know, like with with your your next one, Gravy. 
So <laughs> gravy analytics. I mean, I'm wondering if, if you came, you know, up with, with a name maybe in Thanksgiving while eating the turkey, you know, <laughs> and pouring gravy on it. Or, or <laughs> So tell us how, how you came up with, with this concept. So, again, it goes back to understanding big dislocations of the market. So in this particular case, think back to 2011. And what I looked at and what I saw was big macro trends, um, a mobile, right? And, and I know it sounds patently obvious today. In 2011, I think the iPhone was still just a baby. Um, so this, this, this transformation and the impact that smartphones would have on us as, as part of our daily lives wasn't that evident then. Um, so I knew that's where I wanted to be. I wanted to do something in mobile. And in particular, I started looking at the power of location data. Um, and how that would transform our lives and, and what I had been doing for at that point, you know, 15, 20 years with web cookies and, and understanding movement patterns across digital web footprints. Okay. I said that was going to be really powerful. Um, and I looked around the space of like at the time, uh, Google and Yahoo and AOL and Facebook and others, um, no one was doing, taking advantage of that to, to great, um, success. I was like, that's where I wanted to be. So that was the compelling, um, really broad thought. I wasn't sure where it was going to take me, but I just knew if I, you know, even a dummy like me launched something in that kind of space, I could create something, I think. <laughs> and, you know, obviously with Gravy Analytics, you know, like you've, um, you know, it's the, it's the company where, where perhaps a lot of lessons, you know, you've been able to learn because you've been at it, you know, for, for quite a while with it. Um, so I know that as well that you went through a pivot here. So tell us about that. Yeah, eight years is uh, to date the longest I've ever ever run a company. Um, so prior, so the thesis of what this business always has been was um, where you go is who you are. So um, unlike the the digital world where your footprints, aka cookies, tell websites you visit a little bit about yourself, we thought the most powerful signal of who we are as individuals was not the websites we visit, but the places we visit and the events we attend. So uh, we launched with a platform to collect and aggregate all of the events that occur every day across the U.S. Obviously, all of the places, restaurants, theaters, you know, dining, uh, all that, um, that exist in the commercial world. And if we could intersect your visits to those things, we could learn so much more about you as an individual than a web cookie could ever tell us. And that was the, that was the out of the box thesis, and and prior to 2016, our path to get there was to take some technology that we had developed, embed it into third party applications, and we had partners like eBay, Marriott, USA Today, Gannett, and others, and harvest um, that information in a very aggregated, anonymized, privacy friendly way. Um, and provide those insights back to those people who have licensed our SDK. So it was effectively a enterprise sort of data deal where we um, had to go sell each eBay and and each um, you know Marriott and others to embed our technology in their app. And it was going okay. Um, by the end of 2000, we were on a trajectory by the end of 2016 to be able to observe on a monthly basis about 10 million people. So think of it like a pretty large panel, if you will. Yeah. And, and the aha moment and really what transformed this business was we took a step back and said, why are we being so hard to do business with? Why are we 
going out and selling each individual customer when really the entirety of the platform, the analytics they can provide is so much more powerful than the individual licensing of the software. We said, let's open it up. So we effectively open sourced it. Uh, we launched something called the Geo Signals Cloud. And in one month's time, we went on that trajectory of 10 million users to 200 million users. Wow. Um, and it just entirely changed our business. That's unbelievable. And, and up until that point, had you guys raised any money? Yeah, too damn much. Um, so um, I think at that point we probably had raised, uh, we had finished our Series A. Um, and the entirety of the total raise, don't quote me on this, but I'll say it was in the, through a couple of rounds, we did a series seed and then, a, you know, a series a was probably around 15, 20 million there. And we had been at it now for like six years, give or take. So what was the discussion like with the investors where you told them that you had to go into a different direction than the one that you presented to them for their investment? Uh, in, th in this case, it was a little easier sell because it wasn't taking anything that we had done and throwing away. We were just taking the platform we had built and repackaging it a little different and hopefully putting a much bigger and scalable foot forward. Got now, fortunately, that bet paid off. My, my conversation might have been a little different subsequent to that had it not. Um, but I had a very supportive both A, board, and B, investors um, that really um, – and, and it's, this is true probably of the lessons learned with going back to the original question you asked me about building strong teams. Part of the strongest team for an entrepreneur is going to be their finance partners and their board, whether it be an advisory board or a board of directors. And in this case, uh, even to this day, I had very strong team members there that were both A, patients, and B, great partners to help me through that transition. So, for example, like when you are presenting something like this or when you are like looking at doing a pivot, maybe there's like a lot of people on the line that, you know, are maybe not at the product market fit, maybe thinking about doing the pivot, maybe they've raised some money, you know, like how should they approach the discussion with their investors? Well, it's funny as an investor, and I know, I know you can speak very, very uh, acutely to this as well. You know, there's, there's the old adage and it's there for a reason is you bet the jockey, not the horse. And, and it's a double-edged sword because a great entrepreneur is one who will, you know, nose to the grindstone, dig it all out, beat their head up against the wall until it finally breaks down and they, and they, and they plow through every obstacle. That's a great, great character trait. But also as a great character trait is the ability to have uh, so your vision doesn't blind you, that you can actually pivot, make the, the slight tweaks along the way or maybe some large pivots along the way that takes what is a core construct and makes it into something that you otherwise would have missed had you just been so singularly focused on what you were doing. Yeah, makes uh, makes complete sense. And for example, like here, like how have you also grown the team? Oh my gosh, uh, we're going like crazy. In fact, we're in new offices here. Um, and we first moved in about a year and a half ago. We thought the office was cavernous and we would never outgrow it. Now we're looking for additional space. Um, so, you, you know, I've been fortunate through my previous exits to both a um, have the ability to to surround myself again with some great team members. I have a fantastic team again, complementing uh, skill sets that I don't necessarily have um, to profess to be very good at. So, a great CMO, a great CFO, um, a CTO that I worked with many times in my past. Um, uh, two great GMs that are running our business, both on the commercial side and, and, and doing some public sector things, and then a great supply side partner. The, the fortunate thing about this is almost all of them 
I've either known from my past, um, worked together in my past, or it's such a one degree of separation um, that we've been able to come together and build a really, really world-class team. Very nice. And why do you think that with this company you've stick around for so long? <laughs> uh, they haven't figured me out yet to get rid of me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're okay. we're going to jinx it by this, this podcast. No, um, <laughs> you know, it's funny. Uh, a, we're still having fun. Um, we were probably a little too early to market. So I really believe this company got its, is really its launch in 2016 with that pivot. And it's really transformed our both scale. We're growing at really, really significant rates right now. And, and we've only just begun. So, um, this is, this is a fun ride. And so I, I look forward to doing it as long, as as long as I can. Um, and, and it's, it's really a space that's still, uh, changing. It's funny. I have my elite architects will tell me the technologies that we're working on today didn't exist two years ago. Um, so the technology refresh is so fast paced. Um, it's keeping things very, very interesting. And where do you think that your space is, is going as a whole, Jeff? You know, that's a good question. I think, um, a, I don't think mobile is going out of style. Um, I think it's only going to continue to disrupt our lives. Um, I was on a call the other day with an industry analyst who told me no one buys TVs anymore. And so it, it, it was a little bit of hyperbole, of course. But I think if you looked at whether it be media consumption, workplace productivity, um, and spending time with your family and friends, everything is really centered around a mobile-first environment now. Yeah. And I really believe we've only begun to unlock the next phases of what that looks like. Very nice. Very nice. And one of the questions that I typically ask to the folks that, that come on the show is, I mean, here, Jeff, your experience and track record is remarkable. You're at it for the third time. You know, like, obviously, it comes with the ups and downs, you know, but I guess the, um, you, know, you have a lot of lessons that you've learned along the way. And I guess as, as you're looking back and let's say if you had the opportunity to have a chat with your younger self, with that younger Jeff that was about to take that leap of faith you know, with a mortgage, with kids, with everything from AT&T, if you had the opportunity to go back in time and sit down with that younger Jeff, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to your younger self and why? Go get a job. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> you, you know, it's funny. I, I probably have made every mistake there was to make. Um, but I will tell you that probably the largest thing I wish I'd have learned way earlier on is look at what you don't do well and really, really tightly shore up that weakness. And I'll tell you, in my case, my biggest weakness was always um, finance. I, I knew product, I knew tech, I knew operations, I knew sales and marketing. Finance, because of my experience, was probably my weakest blind spot. And fortunately, I was able to shore that up pretty quickly in my first endeavor. Um, but man, you can never, ever underestimate because to a growing business, cash is oxygen. And if you don't manage it, um, you can, the room gets pretty tight quickly. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, like when you were sharing this, what came up for me is that you, you always don't, you don't know what you don't know, right? It's a, so I guess, especially for the people that are going at it for the first time, you know, and, and the ones that are listening and. And I remember when I started my first company, I, I, I thought I knew everything. And I thought I was like, you know, until I actually made the mistakes, until I saw that I was not a good at certain mm. things, and I needed to, to bring in people. So how do you know what, that, that there's stuff there that you don't know, where you may be, 
meeting you know other people so that you are not actually ending up making the mistake well that's that's very well put and and i think you're right i think the first thing is be vulnerable right um you know i've i as an investor one of those characteristics i that scares me from entrepreneurs is those that think they know it all that are afraid to listen um you know, one of the expressions that, that I use a lot, there, there's no man more blind than one who will not see. And so to be vulnerable with yourself, understand what you don't know and work your tail off to, to shore up those gaps. Um, but you can't, you can't be expected to know everything. You can't be expected to foresee everything. Know that you're going to make mistakes. Know that you're going to skin your knees along the way. You know, and I tell everybody on my team, even to today, we're trying to launch with a big customer, whatever. Assume things are going to go wrong. It's okay. But just learn from it really, really quickly and don't make the same mistake twice. And and to that extent, Jeff, when you're making a mistake, and obviously, you know, I've made a ton and <laughs> made a ton too. We're all human. I guess, what does the reflection process uh, look like, let's say for you, so that you're able to really learn, pick back up yourself and, and keep moving? Well, this goes back to me. This is my one of my uh, skills that I do, but I keep a journal, believe it or not. Um, every day I write down a journal. Sometimes it's prayers for hope. Uh, other times it's lessons learned, but I, I use that for reflection and people learn in different ways. I will continuously look backwards and see the lessons learned that I've codified. Maybe it's the engineer in me. I have to codify things down as I write them, um, but it imprints it in my brain. Um, and it makes it easy for me to go back and remember what was going on. What did I learn? Who did I go to? Um, and that's the other big thing that, that I've learned is don't ever be afraid to ask for help. There's a lot of studies around people and the endorphins that get released in their brain when two things happen. One, you use their name. That's one. But two, um, people like to be asked for help. And if you show the respect to somebody to value both their opinion and advice, uh, know that you're not the first person that's ever been through this. Uh, you've built platforms to help company and help people do this. Kudos to you. I was never smart enough to do that. But there is a willing community of both mentors or first degree or second degree relationships that would love to help. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree with you, and especially founders that that have been there. You know, I think that the pay the pay it forward mentality. You know, for founders that have been there and have done it, it's it's real. Mm. Indeed. So. Yeah. So, Jeff, so I guess for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Well, first off, I, um, I live on LinkedIn. Um, very, um, very easy to find me there. You can go to gravyanalytics.com, learn a little bit more about our company and, and find ways to contact me there as well. Um, but I'm, uh, A, you know, kudos to people like you who give back to the community. I myself uh, feel like it's a give to get model. So as much as I can give in return, I'm, I'm happy to help out any of your listeners. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. Really appreciate it. Thank you for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor. Oh, thank you, sir. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. 
You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.